Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you are listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Josh, what's your new film about? Well, I am trying to solve the problem that Eisenstein never solved. That is, how to make a film that's both materialist and intellectual at the same time. Okay, so that's what Blade Runner 2049 was going for. Got to be a hater, don't you? I do. Some might say it actually succeeded. Some. Ben Stiller there with Adam Driver in Noah Baumbach's 2014 film While We're Young. Another one we split on, Adam. Yes, we did. Baumbach is the subject of this week's show as we review his latest, The Meyerowitz Stories, which stars Stiller and Adam Sandler as stepbrothers, and Dustin Hoffman as their estranged father, plus our top five Noah Baumbach characters. Lots of aimless, anxious, hyper-articulate characters to choose from there. All that, plus Massacre Theater and more, ahead on Film Spotting. You know, it's good to be back, Josh, but the faders all seem a little bit out of whack. The chair is is a little bit lower. Someone's been sitting in my chair. <laughs> what are faders? I don't know. Old school radio term. Okay. Hey, I'm just glad pot it I down. got the thing out there, let alone mess with the faders. That's right. You were sitting in my chair. Yeah. Michael was sitting in your chair. Uh-huh. Our thanks to the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune for filling in for me for a couple of weeks. I hope listeners got a chance to listen to last week's show. They heard your conversation with Michael about Sean Baker's The Florida Project and my interview with him that was taped a few weeks prior. More importantly, I do hope people are actually seeing The Florida Project, which All three of us are in agreement it's one of the year's best films. Yes, for sure. And in more theaters at this point. So it has expanded. Hopefully, people, it's nearby you. It's worth a drive. If you have to drive, Mm -hmm. get out there and see The Florida Project. And yes, as we teased a little bit there in the open, I did catch up with Blade Runner 2049 during my little hiatus. Our podcast listeners will be able to hear my thoughts in the post-credits, our little segment we like to call Hot Mics. I share a few thoughts there. I don't know if it's worth sticking around for him, frankly. But. <laughs> no, it's not. This show, though, is mostly about writer, director, and we split here on how to say the last name. So we're just going to go with it. We're going to go with it. I came in being sure it was Noah Baumbach, but we've got some other references here and we're going with Baumbach. The film spotting pronunciation guide was not enough to convince you. <laughs> no. That it says Baumbach there. That is more than fallible. Yes. Well, that's true. Terry Gross did convince you. 
Bombeck. We heard her say Bombeck. We're going with Bombeck. For now. <sighs> no, forever. <laughs> His new one, The Meyerowitz Stories, debuted to much acclaim this past spring at the Cannes Film Festival and is now playing exclusively on Netflix. We've got our review and later in the show, our top five Noah Bombeck characters. His career, Josh, I think has spanned two, maybe three stages. There's his early to mid-90s stuff, the college grads in crisis film, Kicking and Screaming, probably the best known there. And then we get into the 2000s and we get that trio of dysfunctional, misanthropic family comedies, The Squid and the Whale, Margot at the Wedding, and Greenberg, and then Sunshine. Yes. Greta Gerwig. In many ways, and I just would the picture. Argue. We will talk more about this here in a moment. First, as a supporting player in Greenberg, and then as a co-writer and star, 2012's Francis Ha and 2015's Mistress America. Now, you can throw in while we're young, right between those films in 2014, but that is a film solely credited to Bombback. Whether or not Gerwig had any influence on that, we will discuss in another minute or two here. And we probably have to point out that as we're thinking about the very smart literate dialogue that Bombach is known for. He did collaborate with Wes Anderson on the screenplays for The Fantastic Mr. Fox, your beloved Fantastic yeah. Mr. Fox, and your beloved The Life Aquatic, but we are not going to include those films when we get to that top five later in the show. So do you now have to rip up your top five and start over? <laughs> no. I set those aside immediately. Did get a lot of questions along okay. those lines on Twitter about whether those would be eligible. We decided not. Before we get to that list, Bombach fans that we are, Adam, probably a bit more ardent of a fan than me, we wouldn't have missed his latest, The Meyerowitz Stories, new and selected. Elsie says he's going to try to come to the show at Bard. It's great. I'm sure he'd like to see you there. Yeah, if I'm in town. I think I'm going to show one of the bronzes. It's an early piece I made when you used to sit on the floor and watch me work. Do you remember that? You've told me this before, and I don't remember it. You would hand me tools and make suggestions as if you too were the artist. Well, I wasn't. It was originally untitled, but I'm going to call it Matthew. I'd like to see Eliza, too. She sent me her movie, which I thought was really good. Did you like At it? At that time, I thought you might be interested in sculpture, or maybe an actor or a comic. You were a very talented mimic. I do the voices of a lot of my coworkers, which cracks people up at the firm. I'm gonna run downstairs for an e-smoke. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know Ezra, but that's a pretty good imitation. You were also very musical. Ben Stiller there as Matthew Myrowitz, the favored son, though you may not hear it in the tone of that conversation, of Dustin Hoffman's cranky, solipsistic sculptor Harold in the Myrowitz stories in theaters now and, as we said, available on Netflix. In a 2013 New Yorker profile about the collaborative relationship between writer-director Noah Baumbach and his occasional co-writer star Greta Gerwig, Ian Parker astutely notes, a writing partner who deepens someone's work even as she lightens it does not want to be mistaken for a director's muse. When we talked in New York, Parker continues, Gerwig said, Noah's a realist and a pragmatist, and he sees things without adornment, which is helpful for someone writing about how people actually are and how they feel. For me, I feel like the adornment sometimes is what is true. This passage struck me for a few reasons beyond demonstrating the peril of casually applying the Muse tag. First, despite no direct involvement from Gerwig, Bombach's While We're Young, one of the best films of 2014, according to me, 
and film spotting producer Sam Van Hallgren. Not one of the best, and according to you, Josh. No one else. Yep. Featured Stiller as a struggling documentary filmmaker and explored the illusory, confounding nature of truth in addition to the illusory, confounding nature of millennial hipster language and rituals. Second, the also Gretelis Meyerowitz stories arguably retains most of the bitterness and cynicism we've come to expect from Bombach, while also being about adornment in its purest form. How else would you describe abstract sculpting? The truth of each piece, its goodness or badness, its value or inconsequence, in the eyes of each individual, and dependent on whatever personal meaning and message one can attach to it. I guess I'm positing, Josh, that even when Bombach isn't making a film with Gerwig these days, her influence is there. And yet, Meyerowitz and While We're Young, to varying degrees both dominated by Stiller, are distinct in tone and approach, more grounded than the flight of fanciful Francis Ha and Mistress America, to varying degrees both dominated by Gerwig. Since I'm restricting myself from using the M word, especially when Stiller is not credited as a writer on any Bombac projects, I'll drop a bunch of I words instead. Whose influence, inspiration, ideas, impulses suit Bombac as a filmmaker and you as a viewer, Josh, best? Stiller's or Gerwig's? And before you answer, yes, I'm aware that the nexus for this question is 2010's Greenberg, for our purposes, decidedly on the stiller end of the scale, but co-starring, of course, Gerwig. Sure. And that's the first time we saw her in a Bombac film. Mm -hmm. And she was, even then, a breath of fresh air for me. For the record, fan of Bombac stuff. I Mm -hmm. think I've liked all of it. While we're young, I'd rank last and I was mixed on it. You know, didn't, didn't hate the film. So I'm thinking about this in a couple of ways. I like that you use influence slash, I guess, inspiration, you could say, rather than muse. And I think this comes down to this question of Stiller or Gerwig. It comes down to a matter of personal taste, mm-hmm. really. I mean, what what type of Bombeck film do you like? The more male intellectual angst that he gave us really up through Gerwig's appearance, I would say. There are probably three phases, but Mm -hmm. those first two that you mentioned are dominated from that perspective. Or this, and it isn't even necessarily feminine that Gerwig brings. It's just more fanciful. It's lighter. It's, it's, I can't say funnier. It makes me laugh more. Okay. But that, again, is a matter of taste. Yes. It's more blatantly comedic, perhaps you could say. I enjoy those films more. I think his collaborations with Gerwig are better because they get him out of his head. Not that being in his head is a bad place to be. It's mm-hmm. just a very specific one, one that maybe I I feel like I know for a couple of reasons. There's a strong movie tradition from Woody Allen through others of being in that sort of headspace. I may feel like I have a bit of that headspace. And so I like the experience of seeing things through different eyes, which Gerwig has given him. Now, that brings us to the Meyerowitz stories, Mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting, also liked it, uh, full of feeling, very funny. I found it was a little lukewarm in this trajectory we're setting up, whereas maybe that something like the squid and the whale, which is probably my second favorite of his, is just so bitter. Also funny, but like really misanthropic. And and you can just feel it oozing out of that. Mm-hmm. The Gerwig stuff is is lighter while also tough and sad in a lot of ways, but it has that lightness to it. And this the Meyerowitz stories for me was somewhere in between. So I've been I've been surprised to see this gushing response to it largely, because as much as I enjoyed it, it didn't feel like that much of 
a statement or landmark hmm. film as it's being discussed in the course of his career? Well, get ready for me to gush. <laughs> I, I guess I am just in whatever that headspace is with Could Noah be. Baumbach these yeah. days because I really, really like this movie a lot more than I honestly thought I would. And to go back a little bit and I guess answer the question for myself, we have similar experiences with Baumbach overall. I've always kind of felt like I just thought he was an okay filmmaker. And then I went back and looked at my reviews and looked at how I rated these films. And it turns out, no, I've only had one bad experience with him. And you really like this movie, Margot at the Wedding. And at this Mm. point, since I've so enjoyed his other films, and especially this recent spate of three movies, I'm convinced that I just got Margot at the Wedding completely wrong. I really just need to watch Margot at the Wedding again and see if I had a completely different experience also with it. Also one of the far darker ones, I would and, say. And maybe for whatever reason that at that time didn't appeal to me, maybe it would appeal to me more now. I don't know. But I guess if I had to put myself in this dichotomy, I fall a little bit more on the stiller side only because – I look at While We're Young and the Meyerowitz stories, and I rank them probably just slightly higher than Francis Ha, definitely just barely higher than Mistress America, which is my favorite of the two. Now, I could cop out and say, even though she's in Greenberg, we haven't had a trilogy of films with Gerwig's direct influence like we have with Stiller mm-hmm. as a star and really owning those films. As yeah, a as a collaborator going back to Greenberg. So. Until we get that, and I suppose we force ourselves again to reckon with this, I'm just going to enjoy Bombach's use of both collaborators because I think it's really wonderful. And I could replay a lot of my thoughts on While We're Young with this movie. You said that it's very funny. I think it is. It's legitimately funny. I laughed out loud several times. That doesn't happen to me very often, certainly sitting on my couch at home. And I did watch this on Netflix. I think there's a really fascinating combination here of comedy and pathos. Forget in the same movie where there's some heavy subject matter in terms of the father-son relationships. But more than that, there's a point where a character is close to death. In fact, I think anyone watching is going to assume that a character is going to die. And the way Bombach straddles the humor and the seriousness, like I said, not just in the same movie or even in the same scene, but moment to moment, really surprised me that he was able to pull that off. And there are some other stylistic things that reminded me of while we're young that I know we'll get into. But I hadn't really thought of it despite my setup question to you, Josh, until right now. Maybe for me, I do see the Meyerowitz stories as almost the perfect amalgam of a Gerwig influence film and a stiller driven movie where it's got that hard edge and it's got that cynicism, but it also has some real zaniness and some real lightness to it that, for example, a movie like Greenberg definitely doesn't have. Well, and let's say no matter where you fall on that question, most people would have to agree Stiller does some of his best work as an actor with Bombay. Hands right? down. I mean, it's it's almost and like— And I think in this film, Josh. Yeah, I think he's excellent here. It's almost like you're watching a different performer. Yes. You, you know how sometimes you can see broad comedians embrace their more right. serious side, but you still recognize that person? Here, the switch can be mm-hmm. so drastic. Now, I say that— while at the same time recognizing the root, and this is what I like about Stiller's performance here and for Bombeck in general, and also relates to Sandler's, the root of what's good about it lies with his comedic talent. So that sort of acerbic tone that 
Stiller has mm-hmm. and brings to all of his characters, comic characters, is at the root of Matthew here, right? I mean, he's he can cut people and he knows how to do it. And he, he's sharp and he's witty. And that is also – it's mixed up with this sort of angst even as the favored son. Right. He still has resentment yes. against Danny played by Sandler. And the same thing for Sandler who I, I know we're going to get to but he's excellent here and – using that comic anger that's been part of his persona since he was that's on it. Saturday Night Live. It's not abandoning that. It's not pretending he's someone else, but turning that into the sort of anger that you might see in a real person. And here we get back to maybe Baumbach's preference for reality mm-hmm. and the miserableism that we encounter in everyday life. And Sandler is an angry guy, but also a sad sack guy as this separated father of a girl going off to college mm-hmm. who he's very close to. And the way I've been describing it is this is the first Sandler character, I think, that I've wanted to hug. Yeah. And not that he's always played loud morons. He's specialized in those, but there Mm -hmm. have been sympathetic characters in his career. This is the first guy, and maybe it's that realism, where you do just want to, like, put your arm around him and say, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And that's a level of character investment Mm -hmm. that you don't always get with both of these performers. should have never left that opening at MoMA. It was just dad. Felt obligated. You thought you were doing the right thing. You would have stayed. Probably would have, yeah, but I would have felt bad about it. But it's a good lesson. Dad can take care of himself. You have to take care of yourself. No, he can't, Matt. That's why he's where he is now. I should have been able to tell something was wrong. I I just thought he was getting old. Shit, I yelled at him. Guy was suffering and I screamed at him on the street. There's no catharsis in shouting at an old person who's dying. Do you think he's going to die? Hey, Dad. I agree. I think both of them are as good as maybe they've ever been. And you hit on it in that there is still that basic element of their personas on display. For me with Stiller, it's that neurotic energy Mm -hmm. that he brings to most of his roles. It's there, but it's so muted and he's so grounded and real in a way I have never seen Stiller before on screen. And then that easy rage of Sandler, it comes through at times with this character, but only that, just at times. Otherwise, he too dials that back completely, and they're dialing back what we might see as their natural instincts, and yet they're never boring at any point on screen. And I think the thing that surprised me the most, Josh, is I did maybe expect them to dial up those personas even more because the character's could have allowed for that. Whether or not Bombach would ever write some characters that shallow or direct them with that lack of nuance is another question, but they could have gone down those paths with these characters because the Sandler character is, some could argue, is a loser, right? Mm-hmm. He, he wears his shorts everywhere. He's never really had a real job. He doesn't have any money. And now that his daughter's gone off to school, he really doesn't have anything going no for purpose, him at all. supposedly. So, yeah, so with that lack of purpose, he could have been like I said, a truly boring character, someone who actually annoyed us more than anything, and we didn't see the good sides to him. And that all comes through, especially in how he does interact with his daughter. On the flip side, Stiller's character is playing like a business manager to the stars. He's got a bunch of celebrity clients. He could have been an asshole. He could have been an acerbic one, witty, sarcastic. Some of that comes through, as you said. But I actually think of his character more. I think of Matthew more as a soulful character. I think of the soulful side coming through, the thoughtful side. He's more of a character, it seems to me, who would like to not have 
confrontation and would like everything to go smoothly and just can't help himself every time he's around his father. And that's in contrast to maybe the conventional stiller character that we're yeah. used to. He's he's in the role of a mediator here and he yeah. handles that quite well while not completely losing that neurotic side to him. I do think there is a scene and unfortunately it's a very important one where as you were describing what most of the movie doesn't do in the script, where it allows these actors to decide how they're going to modulate this. It's the confrontation at the showing for their father, Mm -hmm. where this is also the same school. This is at a college campus Uh where Danny's daughter is attending and she's been drifting away from him while still remaining friendly. And it all kind of comes to a boiling point that leads to maybe the sort of confrontation that you would have expected from this movie if you've just heard the setup. Yeah. And something didn't work for me. Oh, see, it I loved like it. Those, they, their characters fell apart to the demands of the screenplay in hmm. that scene. And I can't entirely put my finger on it. I think that it. for me is a case, Josh, where I expected it to be played broader and for laughs. And and the pathos yeah. really came through. I think part of it is the way it's shot, too, a little bit. I, I thought that sequence actually really worked. I think it might be for me because it contains the line of the movie. I think it's the line that sort of subtly enough for me is the line of the entire film. And I think this is a movie that with all its humor and anything else it's doing cinematically, we haven't gotten there yet. I think it does tap into some fundamental aspects of our failings as fathers, as sons, as mothers, daughters, siblings, friends, whatever it might be. And what resonated with me the most was an exchange during that confrontation at the college with Sandler and Stiller where Stiller's response to one of those accusations of failure from his stepbrother is, it's just life. It's not more than that. It's just life. Resigning yourself to that idea or being able to accept that in yourself and in others, that not every slight against you or what you perceive as a slight is something spiteful or was done willfully, that's really hard. And the movie, I think, really gets at that in an interesting way. So I like that line. I like the pain that came through there as opposed to it just being, let's watch these two performers go at each other. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe that was part of my resistance is that it felt like a constructed summation scene when the rest of the movie had uh, a little bit more of um, of an elegance to it, I guess. And, and maybe what precipitates that and set me off on the wrong foot is almost an out-of-character response to his daughter, which we should say is played by Grace Van Patten. She's really good. good. I love how this movie opens, and maybe it's because, um, you know, we're both not too far from this age of sending kids off to college, and he's driving around trying to find a parking. Just watching his face Yeah, trying to find a parking spot with his daughter in the car, and they're just so natural with Mm -hmm. each other. Having, you know, laughing, she also kind of, one of his moments of rage is when a guy cuts in on him, and she kind of laughs like she's used to this. Yeah. Sandler and Van Patten have this great chemistry they really do. in that scene, and it is purposefully drifts away as the characters do. Mm-hmm. But there, there was a certain harshness to how that had to happen for that confrontation scene yeah. to get kicked off, where it felt a little out of character. It felt but. completely organic to me, though, as the boiling point. It was a moment where it had been leading up to her being more and more estranged from him, not in a heavily dramatic way, but texting with other people a little bit more, just being a little bit more withdrawn. And in that moment where he thinks he's actually got some wisdom to impart, and it's already a heightened emotional day, it made sense that it would come out in that moment. So Stiller's good, Sandler's good, yeah. and Patton's good. Yeah. Hoffman? Cut. He, he, you, he's, you just shrugged your shoulders. Well, we should not be in this part. You're, that's my point. I was hoping— He's not bad, but I we guess, should not be shrugging our shoulders. Well, this should be like— yeah. 
Jeff Daniels in Squid and the Whale. I think he's a model for that here. As a matter of fact, I think these two brothers could be the kids in the Squid and the Whale grown up. You know, the timeline. So we might get there. We might get there with our top five, Josh. Don't spoil it. (laughs) Sorry. I like that about this film. And it actually gave me a lens to appreciate more than I might otherwise have. But I'll I'll, I'll let you have that in the top five. I'm just shrugging because this is a case where this sometimes happens with reviews over the course of the show history where people write in and go, how could you not have talked about X or Y? Because the answer is the answer is. A lot of times just because I don't have anything to say about it. And I don't have anything to say about Hoffman's performance. I have nothing negative to say. I also have nothing overly positive to say. So if you want to write that off as, well, it's just okay, I guess you can do that. I just brought nothing to the table on Hoffman We should have something to say, though, because this is the character who is the linchpin of the film. I don't have anything to say either. I'm just pointing out that I think he serves the narrative purpose, which is to be the point of conflict. And he gives you... The idea of why this character is such a pain in the ass. Yes. And I think okay. that's sufficient. It's sufficient. I think it's more. I think it it's, could be more when you look at a very similar narcissistic, everything is sure. about himself, how he filters that through his children, how he uses his children as pawns. I mean, this is Bernard from The Squid and the Whale. Similar. And similar. If, when you're in this same universe and you see how Jeff Daniels yeah. brought so many layers of uh, like you actually could understand yeah. Jeff Daniels. Mm. Here, you, can, think, you don't have to like him. No. You can understand him. Here, you're just like, oh, that's why they're see, all like this. See, I think point to Hoffman. maybe, but I think there is a distinction where Jeff Daniels is meant to be more monstrous. Forget understanding him more. I think he's meant to be more of a monster that we get to kind of laugh at and be grateful that he's not our father. And I don't think that's the exact same dynamic that he's going for here. I think he's supposed to be just that fulcrum around which these siblings turn. And it's enough for Hoffman to carry that and make us believe why they're as messed up as they are. But and I got do, that. Yeah, you, and I got that too. But you do feel his his functionality more than anything else, okay. I'd say. Well, I do want to touch on something stylistically here because it goes back to one of the things I loved about While We're Young. I do think, beyond just the smart dialogue that you have come to expect from him, we get him here using the camera and using the editing in sometimes subtle, sometimes more flashy ways to enhance the comedy. So there's one bit. I noticed him do it once in While We're Young and it knocked me out. And here he does it four or five times to really good effect where he literally cuts someone off mm-hmm. mid-sentence, cuts to another scene. So you get this case where Adam Sandler is saying goodbye to his daughter. It's the eve of her going off to college and she gets in the car with her boyfriend and drives off. And we get that moment where it's the futility of a father yelling at his daughter, text me when you get there as she speeds away. (laughs) With her boyfriend. And he just heightens it by cutting away before he can even get the sentence out. I love that it's almost as if cosmically there's something aligned against him. Right. And I think the other times it happens, it is in a moment of anger or sort of like this futile raging against the universe. And, And I like the balance that the second half has where we shift from those cuts between scenes to these slow fades to black. Yeah, so very it's different. just trying to, as there's a sense of healing or this family starting to understand mm-hmm. each other a little better, perhaps, those abrupt, yes. sharp cuts segue into these fades. Totally. A perfect counterpoint to the scene I'm going to mention here, which is the 
editing, the rhythm of it, the brisk pace of it, the harshness of it, and the use of close-ups in not only that opening scene with Sandler and Van Patten in the car, but especially the dinner scene where they finally get to where they're going. They've got Hoffman and the Thompson playing their father's wife, and there is just the right level of dizziness to that and just being overwhelmed by the situation as a viewer thrown into this family dynamic where it cuts between the reactions and the dialogue. It gives everyone a presence in that scene. But you're right, it's in stark contrast to the more fluid little bit more melancholic nature of the last 15 or 20 minutes of this film. I think it sets that up nicely. I also really like the way Bombach blocks the walk and talk between Dustin Hoffman and Ben Stiller when they're going to his car and they've now had a little bit of a confrontation on this first meeting we see. He uses the camera to underscore the physical distance between them, where Stiller keeps getting ahead of his father. And as someone who is chronically walking ahead of his wife, because that's just in my nature, maybe I was more (laughs) attuned to it, but he's always walking ahead of him. Even then, when he slows down and the camera stops with him and he lets his dad catch up, as soon as he starts moving again, the camera takes off with him and Hoffman's left behind. It's as if Stiller's character won't allow himself to share the same frame with his father. He's always trying to outrun him in some way. So I think that's a really nice touch. And then how about just a subtle moment? You talk about us as parents of daughters as they get older, and we see that exchange we've already talked about when they're on the stoop at night after this dinner scene. She's going off with her boyfriend. She's going to college the next day, and she turns to hug him. I was watching this on Netflix, so I could rewind it three times. And even doing that, I couldn't fully grasp exactly what Bombach is doing. It's so jarring in a good way, but also so subtle that it's hard to pick up on. I think all he does is we get the cut of them in a two shot. She turns to hug him. He cuts quickly to a shot further back, a longer shot, same motion, but it's as if it's not exactly matched on the action. She's already reached in for the hug He cuts then to another shot where she hasn't gotten as far into the hug, then cuts back to the first shot where she's finishing up the hug. He elongates this moment, this final, in a way, exchange between them, this final moment of her childhood and his role as a parent, his purpose as a parent. He elongates it with just a simple bit of cutting. I thought it was a really stunning moment. Should probably mention, since we've talked about the editing a couple times here, the editor is Jennifer Lane. So you mentioned your Netflix experience. And I I hesitate to ask this when I've seen something on Netflix. That's how I watched it too. But it seemed like a lot of this was kind of ugly. And I've got a nice screen at home and I watched some more of it today because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just my screen was messed up. And there just seemed to be, especially in the beginning scene, sort of a, a dinginess that I couldn't attribute to any sort of aesthetic decision behind it. How was your... Hmm. Didn't strike you at all or? No. No. I think we definitely had a different experience there because Robbie Ryan's a cinematographer. This guy's a pro. I I mean, he's he's one of the greats who shot Ken Loach's stuff and shot Fish Tank with Andrea Arnold and Slow West. There's lots of movies there. I didn't see that. No, I didn't. I mean, I did see it, Josh, in the sense that when you get some really striking close ups and here I'm thinking of striking as in a little bit off-putting almost because it's so extreme 
it doesn't feel comfortable. And you get those in the shots in the car with Adam Sandler. I think they yeah. heighten the tension there a little bit. They're not exactly pretty. There's no, something almost no. grainy about those shots. And and as I said, I think they're meant to be a little discomforting. But overall, no, I felt like I felt like the movement of the camera, as I said, and the editing here and just I suppose in terms of just the pure lighting of it, maybe that wasn't the thing that that stood out to me most. But again, right. the movement and the pacing with the editing and the way that helped tell the emotional story, I thought made this visually a treat. Okay. Yeah, it was just a picture quality for me, and for now, I'll blame it on my screen. The Meyerowitz Stories is currently playing in limited release and also exclusively on Netflix. So if you want to get out to the theater, make sure you don't have that visual experience that Josh did. You can watch it on the big screen. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. I did want to use this opportunity real quick, Josh, to point out some bad news as we're talking about Greta Gerwig quite a bit here. I knew I shouldn't have said it. I knew mm-hmm. about three weeks ago. Until it, until it gets booked, you just, you can't bring it up. But I was so excited, and I thought it was such a sure thing that Gerwig was going to be a guest on this show to talk about Lady Bird. And now the press visit has been canceled. I don't think she's coming to Chicago at all. There are some other people associated with the film available. We may talk to them. Obviously, we were really excited about having Gerwig on. And we'll just have to hope for another movie down the road. That will happen. All right, Massacre Theater is next. All I'm going to say prepare to be wowed. Then, will anyone be able to challenge Greta Gerwig in our ranking of Noah Baumbach's best characters? The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Welcome to Suburbicon, a town of great wonder and excitement. Hey there. Built with the promise of prosperity for all. Nikki, you need to get up. There are men in the house. Matt Damon in the trailer for George Clooney's Suburbicon. Josh, I was really hoping that Suburbicon wasn't actually the name of the town in this movie. But from that trailer, it sounds like it might be. So they're going for broad comedy here. I guess so. Clooney directing a Coen Brothers script, notably a script the Coens had deemed not worthy of directing themselves. Are we already sabotaging this future review? Yeah, you're painting a picture where they're like at their desks and they just push a pile of papers to the floor. (laughs) We wrote it, Clooney's down there like just catching them. Picking up the scraps. Is that how they made this? Georgie. Georgie will direct (laughs) this one. (laughs) It played a couple of international festivals earlier this fall, including Venice, then Toronto. And yeah... Okay, the response from critics who've seen it has been not that great, not that glowing like you might expect with the Coen brothers pedigree and with that cast, not only Damon, but Julianne Moore in the film, Oscar Isaac in the movie. Nevertheless, 
We're going to talk about it on next week's show, Josh. You know, by the time we get to it, the cycle will have gone around and all these people will be calling <laughs> Film it of the an year. underappreciated classic. So we'll be fine. I love it. Our current film spotting poll question, which is available at filmspotting.net. We're just going to keep milking this a little while longer because we got a couple weeks until Halloween. We asked you, what is the best horror film of the past decade. So 2007 to 2017 listeners so far, Josh seem pretty happy with the choices we offered. It's a rare poll question where we're not being inundated with all of the things we got wrong so and all of the options the we should have included poll question segment that didn't immediately lead into a correction corrections. Segment. Yes, that's right. Now, one major exception, someone wrote in, it might've been on Twitter and they said, you know, I've got a friend who's really into horror movies and they were shocked that there wasn't a Ty West movie on here like The House of the Devil. And it hit me in that moment that somehow I had it in my head that House of the Devil was from before 2007. Mm. It is not. I didn't think it was eligible. It's definitely eligible. And it's made past top five lists of mine, including scariest moments or scariest Mm -hmm. scenes, certainly 21st century horror movies. It's on that list. So I love that film and I'm a fan of Ty West overall as a director. He also made The Innkeepers. But other than that, we had nine or 10 options that do seem to be resonating with people. And so far, it's another case where the results are not playing out as expected. I did suggest that we not include the movie that's currently a few votes shy of leading the whole thing. Okay. So... Just once again, I'm back to, after getting one right, I'm yeah. back to my old ways just of being stay away. just stay wildly away. misguided on these poll questions. And we can't wait to share the results with you. If you have not voted yet in this poll, you can do that at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment in the poll question, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Speaking of Suburbicon, if you want to see it before it opens here in Chicago for free, we have that ability for you, along with LBJ, the new movie starring Woody Harrelson, Last Flag Flying, the new one from Richard Linklater, and Wonder, which comes out in November and is directed by Stephen Chbotsky, who did The Perks of Being a Wallflower. David Diggs of Hamilton fame is also in that film. We've got passes for all of those movies, and by the time you click on filmspotting.net slash events, there might even be more free movie passes available. So those are all coming up in the next two to three weeks. If you would like to enter to win those passes, you can do so. That website, one more time, filmspotting.net slash events. Now, Josh, we're going to add some other information to filmspotting.net slash marathons this time, something we haven't done before, but we've got so much to fit in here on the show. We didn't want to leave out our new Argentine Cinema Awards, Mm -hmm. but... We just don't really think that we've got room for them in the show proper. Don't want to devote a whole separate podcast just to those awards. So we are going to list them for the completists out there, the people who can't move on in their film watching until we we close out the marathon. We had a good group of people joined us on this marathon. So we definitely need to get to these awards. We'll do it on the site. We had some trouble landing on a name for the awards. Our Agnes Varda marathon, we went with the Cleos. And our Luis Bunuel marathon, we went with the Obscure Objects. Didn't come to one quite so quickly. Some good suggestions Mm -hmm. came in. Finally, we got this email from Nathaniel Myers. He's in South Bend, Indiana. I wanted to write because after listening for over a year, I finally followed along with one of your movie marathons. Not in a million years would I have guessed I would have started with Argentine cinema, but after regretting missing the Varda Marathon in particular, I figured I'd take the extra step and challenge myself to a series of films I knew almost nothing about. To cut to the chase, I want to say thank you. I didn't love every film in this series, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to encounter Lucretia Martel's stunning work, Headless Woman was the only film I'd heard of prior to the marathon, and Extraordinary Stories was a surprising gem of a film. 
I don't know if you're still looking for a title for your awards, but the person I kept coming back to while watching these films was Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges, whose influence was felt in these films in numerous ways, most palpably in the sense of the near-fantastical nature of so many of their stories, Martel's films possibly being the exception, but even then, the drifting nature of the camera and plot alongside her film's heightened soundscapes, generate a gauzy unreality over their stories. But you also see Borges through some thematic parallels, like in the film's various interests in randomness and causality, and more generally, in time. A quote from Borges that seems applicable to every film in the series, reality is not always probable or likely. Again, there's a sense that all of these are engaged in some way with the fantastical or the unreal, or perhaps the hyperreal, as when we seem to enter the headspace of Martel's characters. So finally, my Borges-influenced award name suggestions. We get there the Ficciones, title of a Borges collection, an anthology of sorts, I might add. The Inverosimil, which I think means the improbable or the incredible, and... The Extraordinarius, which, yes, pulls from the original title of Extraordinary Stories, but like the second potential award name, has the nice pun of meaning both beyond the ordinary slash reality and excellence. These names may stray too much from the movies themselves, I realize, but in struggling to find a through line for them, Borges seemed to offer a potential way forward. In any case, up next for me in terms of your marathons, The Archers from the Maddie years. Yeah, Powell Pressburger was a big one for me, certainly going back now hard to believe almost 10 years. I think that marathon with the archers was from 2007 or 2008. Thank you so much, Nathaniel, not only for the thoughtful feedback, but of course, for those recommendations. And in fact, Borges was in our minds over the course of this marathon, though, I think fair to say, neither of us felt as if we could speak to him and his influence with any kind of clarity. I haven't even read him at least. Okay, so for me, it was 20 years ago. You've read him. Yeah, philosophy in literature as a junior. There you go. We read from Ficcione. So maybe that's why I'm inclined to go with that one. We're going to call these new Argentine Cinema Awards the Ficciones. Thank you very much, Nathaniel, for that. We will share our best film, the best lead performance, the best supporting performance, the best scene, and then that marathon-specific category, the one we decided to go with here, was not exactly meta moment, but that best narrative device yeah, or storytelling device, right. device, I think, is what we're going to go with here. As so many of these movies, as you heard Nathaniel touch on, did deal directly with the form of storytelling. These awards can be found at filmspotting.net. Just click on the marathons link at the top of the page. And we would love to get to some future marathons. There is some discussion about a Godard marathon, potentially, even yet this year. I don't know that it's going to happen. We've got some talking to do behind the scenes, but we hope to get to another one soon. And as soon as we do, we will share that lineup over at filmspotting.net. So, Adam, this is probably going to shock you, but not every film spotting listener has bought my book yet. What? I know. It's been out since June. Movies are prayers. I don't know. So I have a little enticement here for those who haven't picked it up. We have a discount code for yeah. film spotting listeners 40% off. Wow pretty good, huh? That's a lot. You just have to go to the publisher's website for that and use this code, eMovies. 40% off with eMovies. And here's the website, ivpress.com slash movies dash r dash prayers. We'll link to that in the show notes to make it easy for you. But yeah, for I think, you know, the 10 who haven't Mm. gotten it yet, little discount for them. A very good discount. And I can't judge because I didn't buy my own copy. I mean, you just personalized it. You gave me one. I got a signed copy for free. No, I, I, that was 25 bucks. You owe me. Oh. Okay, let's move on. Time now for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred this scene. Well, do you want to do it? That depends. 
On what? On you. Hey, this caravan. Ah, uh, not the Rouge, but the Rolls. It's not the same caravan. It's not the same fight. What's the f***ing size of the last one? Turkish. The fight is twice the size. And my master needs a caravan. I'd like to look after me mad. It's a fair deal. Take it. Mickey, you're lucky we aren't worm food after your last performance. Buying a Tarts mobile palace is a little f***ing rich. Some calling your mum a tart. I just meant... Now save your breath and cured your parts. Hey, look. So what's a heck of two roof lights? Uh, the sinus house frame furniture. And the uh, scarf cushions with the uh, matching shack by cover. Yeah. Right. It's a terrible parcel to the party with the blue bags. Have I made myself clear, boys? That is, yes, Brad Pitt going big as Mickey O'Neill alongside Jason Statham's Turkish in 2000 Snatch. It was written and directed by Guy Ritchie. That massacre was part of a show that also included our review. Oh, we did do this, didn't we? Yeah. Kingsman 2, The Golden <laughs> Seems Circle. Seems like 100 years ago. <laughs> And also, that was the same show Adam interviewed Columbus director Koganada. That was much more pleasant. A very lovely, pleasant chat indeed. We heard from Alan Bishop, who said, Josh must have consulted Brad Pitt's dialect coach because he nailed it. Yes. Sorry, Adam. Did you, Josh? Did you nail the pikey accent? Let's go to the tape. Now look, she wants the hacker to roof lights, huh? The style of frame picture and the skirt cushion with the match shake power covering. Eh? Right? And she's terribly parched to play with the blue bars. Okay, I don't, I don't think was, I can argue. That was Pitt. That I don't wasn't think me. I can argue with Alan Bishop, who goes on to write Connections. For starters, how about Matthew Vaughn producing Snatch and directing the James Bond riffing Kingsman films? Speaking of Bond connections, Vaughn directed the most recent James Bond, Daniel Craig, in Layer Cake. And of course, you pick this Brad Pitt scene to contrast Tom Cruise's far and away Irish accent. How much better would far and away have been if Cruise had attempted this accent? Wait. <laughs> Pitt and Cruise? How about Amy Nicholson's beloved Tom Cruise turn in Interview with a Vampire as a connection? So we're mixing shows here, but yes, in between the Kingsman and Koganata show, we did share our top five Tom Cruise performances and talk about his new one, American Made. So lots of lots of connections here So we can see the into mix. the future for our connections. That's it. Michael Murphy from L.A., Snatch star Jason Statham, truly never better, co-starred in the Melissa McCarthy-fronted comedy Spy, another send-up of spy movie tropes. Keith Geiger in Ocean City, Maryland, said, I'm starting to think maybe you guys, along with Cruz and Pitt, shouldn't be doing accent work. <laughs> well, Keith. Okay, so Keith is maybe the lone voice of dissent here because we've got Chris in Albuquerque, New Mexico, absolutely stunning upset that Josh's mimicking of Brad Pitt's incomprehensible dialect came across as several orders of magnitude more naturalistic than Adam's performance as someone who'd been washing down horse tranquilizers with malt liquor. Put down the I malt think I'm still, liquor, I'm Adam. still performing the scene somewhere, actually, right now. Marie Foley said, I admire your confidence and utter lack of self-consciousness. This is what I say every time I see Josh, every I time he walks into the studio. Josh was speaking English until I heard him mention the caravan for his ma. Caravan for ma! I can't say it was good, but you really do go all out. That said, don't try the accent in public. Probably good advice. Eva in Bergen, Norway, closes us out. It made me laugh out loud at the gym, just like Josh's Frankenfurter did when I listened to it last week. The people at my gym might think I'm slightly crazy. Seriously, Josh, you might be my favorite voice actor at the moment. (sighs) I I should just retire after all this praise. Eva, don't encourage him, please. (laughs) All right, so a fair number of entries, but a lot of film spotters out there who I'm going to say had no idea what the hell you were talking about, and I certainly did the scene no favors. So it's not so brimming, but reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Travis English, which I was not speaking. English. 
from Fountain Valley, California. Congratulations, Travis. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we'll set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. What happened to the canola line? Fox. You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. Ready or not... And I am decidedly not ready. Step we up, move on step now. Step up to the plate, Adam. You've <laughs> got this, this guy edition. down. Yeah, right. See, now you're giving a hint. And I think listeners need hints for this one because there's nothing about this scene that is memorable. When no, I think really. about this movie, no. there's nothing about it that's going to jump out to anyone and go, oh, yeah, I place it as this movie. Certainly not with our performances. At least I will only speak for myself. Now, if you do think about the context of this show, the movie we reviewed, any thematic character connections or other connections that's where you should go yeah that'll be most helpful here definitely not adam's performance i get to be the straight man i i get i'm I cracking open the malt liquor for the record and down in some horse tranquilizers <laughs> good i don't really have to do much here <laughs> so let's go okay you're gonna give me the action and action wow is that dad's freezer yeah can i say something what you don't have permission to take his property. That belongs to all of us. And use it for yourself as if it's yours. Jack agrees with me, right, Jack? Plus, Dad would have hated it. Why? That's my opinion. I knew him well. That's a terrible thing to say. Well, I don't mean it to be. I just don't want you to get the feeling that you're better friends with him than we are or something weird like that. And also, you can't leave your wife just because she's pregnant. Jack agrees with that too, right, Jack? I was his favorite. He told me that with blood all over him laying in the street before he died. And, and scene. Not bad. Okay. You went a little country there for I went, a while. Well, but then you came back. There's a little twang there. You came back from out west. That last line. Yeah. That was very forceful. You didn't go horse tranquilizer there. I like it. Thank you. I felt it. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 30th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Wow. Francis, Bernard, Lester, Chet. Who will make the cut for our favorite Noah Baumbach characters? The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. That's where we're comfortable. That's that's where the fun is. Freshman pennies are there. I don't need to go to a campus bar to be reminded of my lack of success with a bunch of thrill-seeking, snotty college kids. That's us. We're like celebrities to them. No, we were celebrities. Now going back would be like doing Hollywood Squares. I'm too nostalgic, I'll admit it. 
We graduated four months ago. What can you possibly be nostalgic for? Chris Eigeman and Jason Wiles there in 1995's Kicking and Screaming, the debut film as a writer and director for Noah Baumbach. And I think that character, one of those two characters in that scene, really should be the inspiration for a lot of people listening. Maybe you are pregnant, maybe you're having a child, and you're thinking Skippy. Skippy is the name I'm going to go with. You should probably rethink that. Maybe. No Grover? No Grover, Miami. There really is only one Grover, and he lives on Sesame Street. That's right. No one else should be Grover. But there are an abundance of odd names in Kicking and Screaming, or at least I suppose odd to us, Josh. And we're not going to focus on character names. We're going to focus on the characters themselves as we share our top five Bombat characters. And we have some overlap here. It's kind of surprising. We started out thinking about this in terms of our favorite scenes or moments from his movies, decided it might be a little more approachable and more fun, too, if we talked about some of his more memorable characters instead. And it turned out that we actually share a top three. So... This I is think like, we just got it right, Josh. What do they call that? Right. Solar eclipse? Yeah. From a month or so yep. back? We're experiencing that right now. <laughs> right now. Show. Three agreed <laughs> picks at the top. But we have some variation at five and four, which we're going to get to now. Who's your number five? My number five does come from kicking and screaming. It's not, however, one of the four, right? There's four central buddies. I think so, yeah. It's Chet. It's Eric Stoltz. Really? Who's kind of like hanging around outside of the circle when he's not tending bar. This is, as you mentioned, Bombeck's 1995 debut. And yeah, you've got these four really smart, literate buddies at the center who are just petrified at the thought of leaving their comfortable college bubble after they've graduated. And then Chet is this guy who's very comfortable outside of the college bubble because he's never really left. He's a bartender just outside of campus. He's still a perennial student, takes classes. I don't know if he's ever, does he say if he's actually graduated or not? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But it's been about 10 years. The way he describes it, he just likes to learn. Some people need to have a, a, a real career, which is something that I've never really understood. You know, why someone would want to be a vet or a lawyer or a filmmaker. I'm paraphrasing myself here, but I am a student and that's what I chose. You might need to choose something else and that's... What I liked about Chet in Kicking and Screaming is he's this crucial balance to the movie's otherwise overworked post-college angst. Mm -hmm. Like all the other guys are kind of dealing with the same thing pretty much. And he's something of a clown, yes. He's he's a joke at first, like who's that guy still hanging around? But then he sort of moves into this position of being a mystic in a way where they come to respect at least his contentment in life yes. that he's found, if not his particular situation. He's he's sort of like the best possible version of McConaughey's Wooderson in Dazed and Confused. Maybe right? so. Another guy who yeah. hung around far too long for maybe uh, less savory reasons. No, that's there in that character for sure. And I think a perfect balance to that is you talk about angsty discontentment. Sam nailed it with the clip he played. For me, it's Max, the Chris Eigeman character from Kicking and Screaming at number five. And I think we all got introduced to him probably even before this with Whit Stillman, Metropolitan, Barcelona in 1990, and then 1994 for Barcelona. And then he was also in The Last Days of Disco in 98. So when you think about these filmmakers who are hyper-literate and have this very smart dialogue and sarcastic dialogue, Chris Eigeman's like the poster boy for these guys in a lot of ways because of these performances and these characters. And Sam 
pulled the best scene in the movie for that character for me in terms of illustrating that wit that comes through and that angst. But the best part of it is actually what follows what we just heard, where he's talking about how he's too nostalgic to get caught up in these college activities. And the Skippy character says, we graduated four months ago. What are you, what are you possibly nostalgic for? And he says, I'm nostalgic for conversations I had yesterday. I've begun reminiscing events before they even occur. I'm reminiscing this right now. I can't go to the bar because I've already looked back on it in my memory and I didn't have a good time. So I just love the humor of that. And I love the sarcasm, how it's dripping with it when he says it. But at the same time, there is something truthful about it. There is something that I think taps into. Certainly, these are characters, Josh, in the mid-90s, just graduating from college, same time we were graduating from college. These are Gen Xers. This isn't the same dynamic as sort of the millennial generation or Gen Z today. It's a little bit of a different sensibility. And this idea that somehow they're already sort of lost and burdened by nostalgia, I think felt right to me at the time when I saw this back in the late 90s. And it feels even more right to me now somehow. But in addition to that, I think of that Max character kind of as the fool. We laugh at him a lot and we laugh at the things he says. At one point, he's out on a date with a high school girl and she points out that it's her birthday tomorrow (laughs) and he can't help himself but to say, how terrible that is for him because now what's he going to do? Does he have to buy her a gift? And he describes it as inheriting a tragedy. So well, a little bit pretentious there. He verbalizes there. all this angst, That's it. Right? He That's just has thing. to express yeah. it. And there is a wonderful article I'll link to in our show notes. Vikram Murthy wrote for IndieWire back in 2015 when the Music Box here in Chicago did a retrospective on Bombac. And I don't remember this at the time, but they did a really good thing, Josh. They didn't do it chronologically in terms of the year his films were released. They did it chronologically based on the trajectory of the characters, whether they're coming out of high school or they're in college or while we're young would be, of course, the movie that would be at the end of this series, Margot at the Wedding, probably just before it. And he has a line in there from the Max character where he says to Grover, the main character, we stay together out of fear. That's all we know. So he is kind of this fool that we laugh at and laugh with, but at the same time, He's the only one other than maybe the Eric Stoltz character who really seems to understand just how absurd this all is, but he can't get himself out of it. You really have to give credit to the performers and kicking and screaming, too, because to make those lines, which are so written, right, to make them work at all, which they largely do, because this is a movie which I just saw last week for the first time, actually. The screenplay wants to be the star so badly, yeah. you know, which I think is maybe the case for for a fair amount of debuts that come from writers slash directors. And, yeah, I think the cast, Carlos Jacot is very funny as another one of the friends, does manage to sell this screenplay just enough as something that might come out of somebody's mouth. OK, my number four is Margot played by Nicole Kidman from Margot at the Wedding. Uh, The movie follows her return to her childhood home here for the wedding of her younger sister. Now, that sister's played by Jennifer Jason Lee, and she's a free-spirited type. Margot's the opposite, controlling, mean-spirited. When she gives a compliment, even the compliment is delivered to sting. It's almost as if everything she says has layer upon layer of, if not insult, definitely insinuation. Will the wedding be crowded? I don't know. I don't think she knows anyone anymore. She's only known this guy a year. Is that short? Would you marry someone you'd only known a year? I can't say I have a lot of hope for the whole thing. Why are we going then? 
We're supporting her. I thought she wasn't speaking to you. No. No. I wasn't speaking to her, but I'm over it. I think of Nicole Kidman as a very precise actor, and usually that serves her well. It definitely does here because you get this sense of Margot, everything, even though she's quick and it comes out fast, that it has been calculated. She's been prepared mm-hmm. to strike. She's like, it's like a, her conversations are military strikes, you know? And uh, it's just fascinating. She might be, maybe we'll get into this with other characters, one of Bombac's most unlikable characters, certainly to anchor a film. And there's just something mesmerizing about watching a movie commit to that sort of. I guess the difference is a lot of the miserableism his characters Mm -hmm. experience, it's always interior. But there are exterior forces that are also being, by the plot, forced upon them. With Margot, it's like she comes in and just brings all the distress Mm -hmm. with her. And not a pleasant watch, one of his least funny films, but still one that I like quite a bit. Yeah, for me, it was just a case, I think, of getting lost in that morass of miserableism. I couldn't yeah. I couldn't get out of it. And I didn't find any characters who were redeeming. And I don't mean that in the sense that I have to respect or even like every character, but I couldn't find anything to latch right, no on anger, to with yeah. that movie. I and see that. I really do, as I said at the beginning of the show, feel like it's a movie that it's such a blip on the radar with Bombax's films for me that I'm sure I got it wrong and I need to see it again. Speaking of us getting movies wrong, you knew I was going to have a character from 2014's While We're Young at number one? four. Just one. one? Well, I could go with the it's entire ensemble, five. Josh. But I'm going with Adam Driver's Jamie, oh. who is that hipster kid living in Brooklyn who has aspirations of being a documentary filmmaker and befriends in a very calculated way, we come to learn. I think that word's going to come up a few more times on this list. Ben Stiller's documentary filmmaker character and his wife, played by Naomi Watts. And I was looking back at my notes from the 2014 show where we did our top 10 films of the year, and I basically said, he's one of these characters who it's almost impossible not to want to punch him in the face every moment of the film, and somehow simultaneously you want to be his best friend. I felt it anyway with that Stiller character. There's something so invigorating about his youth, about his seeming earnestness, about his seeming innocence that, again, may all be calculated, and we come to basically learn that most of it is, but there's an energy and there is an optimism to it that is contagious, and it's certainly contagious for the Stiller character. He's someone who you know, I think, Josh, moment to moment, scene to scene, that you're being sold something, You are being sold something. Something feels just a tiny bit off, but you want to buy what he's selling so badly because he's mostly telling you things about yourself that you want to hear that you go along with it. It's a completely different type of script, I think, and there's a different type of wordiness to it than, for example, in Kicking and Screaming. But I think what you said about Eigenman's character and some of those other members of the ensemble in Kicking and Screaming, how they were able to take that heavy dialogue and make it flow and make it seem as natural as it can be. I think there's an element of that with Jamie and with Driver's performance here as well, because he's someone who could just look on the page as someone you could easily dismiss or see as someone who has a certain smugness. And that comes through a little bit, but he's also just so comfortable in his own skin. And I think that more than anything is what comes through with that character. And those lines that are quite funny from the script on the page In anybody else's hands or mouth, I suppose, they might have come off as a little bit absurd or unnatural. They come off as natural because of Adam Driver. 
I feel like there are people who don't drop things as much as I do. I don't keep things your. She's a mess and an ugly eater. I say that with love. F you. It's an avocado and almond milk sorbet. Benny designed the container. Tastes like that candy that they sometimes make into pigs or little fruits. Yeah. It's, um, I know that. I keep wanting to say baklava, but that's a mm. Greek dessert. The almond tasting pigs and fruits are made of. I'll look it up. No, that's too easy. Let's try to remember it. Can I now? No. Let's just not know what it is. Yeah, I feel like I'm still trying to wrap my mind around Adam Driver as a performer, honestly, because mm -hmm. I've had instances where I feel like whatever it is he's doing, which I can't quite identify, doesn't quite work. And while we were young was a case. You like that. it on Patterson. But then he does Patterson, right. which he's masterful in. Mm -hmm. So I think it's at this point, it's me just trying to acclimate myself to Adam Driver. Um, if you're giving Margot a chance, I'll, I'll give. What's his name? <laughs> no, you what's won't. his name in while Jamie. we're young? No. Jamie. You will never give that movie another chance. <laughs> Adam Driver, I didn't say the movie. Being well, specific how does here. that get done exactly without rewatching the movie, Josh? I'll watch a few of his scenes. Okay. Let's get to three performances, three characters from Noah Baumbach films that we can absolutely 100% agree with, including The Order. Yes. These are our three favorites, and we've got some voicemail support to help us with this number three pick. Hey, film spotting. It's uh, Jeff Milo for No Michigan. Calling about... Uh, your top five Noah Baumbach characters. And uh, I know you're going to get a thousand calls probably voting for Greta Gerwig playing Francis Ha. And I'm hoping I can make a unique and inspiring case for, for her. Um, I think the character Greta created uh, with Noah is one of my favorite film characters of all time for several reasons. I, I think we're responding to how she's not just unafraid to show vulnerability, but sometimes uh, blissfully unaware that she is indeed showing vulnerability. And it's a significantly refreshing counterpoint to, you know, a lot of the uh, curmudgeonly 45-year-old men that Bombaugh gives us, like in Greenberg or Squid and the Whale. Here's a woman who is almost like a meteorite of uh, mirthfulness, and outrageousness and yes she can be obnoxious but also lonely and also self-centered and desperate and full of doubt and um, she's radiating with all of those different shades but the complexity deepens of course because it, it's not just a movie about her and how unique she is it's about her longing for love and for a kind of a soulmate and uh, this, what the script's dialogue allows for um, all of this uncertainty about how to uh, express that or the uncertainty about how to capture uh, what she wants. Uh, I think that all comes through. And I think that the, the curmudgeonly men would, would have suppressed those feelings under some snide remark. But as she shows in the speech uh, about looking across the room at your love, she's not afraid to tell you anything and everything. And, uh, and she will. It's, it's what I want in a relationship which might explain why I'm single now, haha. -ha. <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of hard to... It's that thing when you're with someone and you love them and they know it and they love you and you know it, but it's a party and you're both talking to other people and you're laughing and shining 
and you look across the room and catch each other's eyes, but, but not because you're possessive or it's precisely sexual, but because that is your person in this life. And indeed, Greta Gerwig's Francis Ha is our number three pick. What do we have left to say about Francis Ha that Jeff Milo, unofficially the third member of Film Spotting now, he's appeared in so many recent top fives that he hasn't said about Gerwig and her performance? Yeah, that was really good. I also keyed into the idea of vulnerability that comes with her. And maybe the difference is that she brings a self-awareness to it. Gerwig does mm-hmm. as Francis, where she does have an awareness to this vulnerability or the these character flaws, I guess you could say, but she doesn't obsess over it like some of Bombeck's male characters do, mm-hmm. where that becomes the whole point. She kind of glides past it. And at the same time where you feel like you almost want to protect her because of that, you also right. admire her because of that. This is how I described her when I wrote about Francis Ha. An aspiring dancer half-heartedly struggling to make ends meet in New York City, she drifts through life like a seed on the wind, occasionally setting on a place that would seem to be fertile, but then blowing along again before getting a chance to bear fruit. And I just loved watching her do that. Even though if you lived in her life, it would frustrate you. As someone who cared for her, it would certainly frustrate you. You just have to admire because the world has no time for people like that. Right. But you want the world to create a space for them. Yeah. And her insistence on being Mm -hmm. that person is what makes her so appealing. Yeah. I went back to my notes from two years prior to seeing While We're Young when we talked about this movie in 2012. And I had some of the same thoughts that I expressed about Jamie with Francis in terms of being kind of a contradiction where you talk about frustrating. Yes, she's 100 percent endearing and sweet at times. And there's something kind of adorable about her aimlessness. But she's also annoying often at times. And she is someone who maybe me too beaten down by the realities of the world would find her fancifulness a little odd and I wouldn't have time for it. But the way I talked about her was as someone who, even if I never really wanted to see her again, I would have been grateful that I was just in her orbit for the 90 minutes that were in the orbit with her over the course of this film. And that word calculated, I mentioned, she doesn't have one in her body. That's one way she's completely different Mm -hmm. than someone like Jamie. There's nothing conniving about her. She's completely devoid of ambition and you've got someone like jamie who's extremely ambitious but acts like he doesn't care she in contrast cares deeply about everything but is not in it for any kind of personal gain and i do think that makes her a fascinating bomb back character and i mentioned that she tackles her performance with almost a screwball comedy energy in this yeah. movie which we get in full force in another performance from her in a Bombac film that we might just get to here in a moment. But it doesn't matter how bad the situation is. There's just nothing to her performance that reeks of pretense. And there's no sense of entitlement to her character. Everything for her, she's just experiencing life and all its beauty and all of its ugliness the same way. She approaches it the same way. And while it might be unrealistic in real life in the movie world, I'm glad to have spent that time with her. Now, we go from endearing curious Francis delightful to <laughs> to someone who's the opposite of delightful with our number two Josh Bernard Berkman Jeff Daniels from the squid and the whale this is who I was thinking of when I said maybe there's you know another character who's less likable than Margot mm. Margot at the wedding and it's this guy this absent arrogant father novelist who really teaches more than he writes now 
And the story centers around his recent separation from his wife, played by Laura Linney, and how that affects his two teen sons. This takes place 1980s Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I believe. And yeah, it's it's just, you know, Bernard's first priority, even when dealing with his kids, is going to be maintaining his own status, even if it's inflated in his own head. Mm-hmm. And, and these are other shades we see from Harold in the Meyerowitz stories, the Dustin totally. Hoffman character, uh, his own sense of self-importance. And the scene that I revisited that reminded me of this was when he first introduces his sons to the new flat where he's going to live and how he's trying to position that mm-hmm. as a reflection of his own importance as well. Okay. Your mom and I, okay, yeah. Uh, mom and I are going, we're going to separate. You're not going to be leaving either of us. We're going to have joint custody. Frank, it's okay. I've got an elegant new house across the park. Across the park? Is that even Brooklyn? It's only five stops on the subway. It's an elegant block, the filet of the neighborhood. We'll have a ping pong table. I don't play ping pong. So I think we had a new or greater appreciation for Jeff Daniels when we revisited Something Wild earlier this year. Yes. And, you know, he's there. He was just, he was lightly comic. He was goofy, very likable. We knew all that about him, but he was also giving a full performance there, too. This, man, it's like that has almost almost been completely squashed out of Daniels as a human being. And he zeroes in on narcissism, self-obsession. It curdles into this bitterness eventually. Mm -hmm. But I think it works for me because there's still a nice guy residue. Huh. Bernard. There's a Jeff Daniels. I don't know. And I don't think he's going for it. (laughs) Maybe it's it's a charm. It's just there's something still there that to me doesn't mean you like the guy. Right. But you see him as human. And maybe that's the distinction with Hoffman's performance. Like mm-hmm. I still see that there's there's a guy who's hurting a lot of people, but he's also hurt. Um, and because it's Jeff Daniels, that comes through. Yeah, the hurt definitely comes through. And I don't remember who we were talking about earlier. Maybe it was during our conversation about the Meyerowitz stories. But he's another character from a Bombback film who is a writer and who exists and functions almost like he's narrating his own story. He talks like the narrator in a novel is writing about him with that same kind of air of pretentiousness. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have an internal monologue. He just has to voice everything he's feeling every moment. He can't suppress anything. And I suppose that's something that is a little bit endearing, while at the same time he's mostly complaining about whatever it is that seems to be conspiring against him. I think on this list, certainly of Bombat characters, we have to have a bad dad, as that's been a common theme that's run through these films. And I think he's the ultimate terrible dad. And you touched on this briefly. You brought it up during our Meyerowitz review. Watching some scenes from this today, it really hit me how connected Meyerowitz is to the squid and the whale, because I think in the Walt and Frank relationships and the relationship they individually have to their father, you see that in the form of Danny Mm -hmm. and Matthew in Meyerowitz, they are perhaps the grown-up versions of those characters where one has nothing but resentment towards him. The other one does seem to be a little bit more favored perhaps and wants to favor him and wants to love him back but still ends up harboring some resentment. And like the father, you mentioned this, like Dustin Hoffman in Meyerowitz, there's that competition, the competitive streak. He always has to win, not just with his wife 
or with his colleagues or anyone else, but with his own children. And it makes me think of a line from the latest film where I think it's the Stiller character says to Hoffman's, you were the only artist in the family. Maybe it was Sandler. One of the two sons says to Dustin Hoffman, you could be the only artist in the family. You're always talking about how, you know, we didn't fulfill these talents we had. Well, basically, you wouldn't let us because you could never stand one of us transcending you. And that comes through 100% with the Jeff Daniels character. He is ultimately a phony because he wants to foster this creativity and this talent or seems to want to, but at the same time, he would never let them exceed his own abilities or have more esteem than him. Well, the competitiveness, another scene I watched was the terrible family tennis match. Oh, yeah. Where he's, I mean, he just wants to devour them all. You mean all. A, a depiction of my family bowling? Yeah, that was, <laughs> Oh, we bowled on. in Iowa. I, I, oh, it went badly? Because last time we all bowled as families, you were quite polite yeah, with each other. Yeah, but we were. When, when there aren't guests I was around. drinking. Oh, that malt liquor again. <laughs> that malt liquor again, Josh. And we have to say, while we're talking about Bernard, he gave us the line, oh, that's minor Dickens. I mean, <laughs> I think I've said it before, but that still comes up maybe a couple times a month in casual conversation. We just want to dismiss something, even though you don't know what you're talking about. Just refer to it as minor whatever. It works. And it works, Josh. Okay. Our number one, Noah Bombach character. Are we really going with yet another Greta Gerwig performance? Oh, yeah. We have to. I agree. And the question might be, why Brooke from Mistress America over Francis from Francis Ha? It's a question I ask myself uh, because I love both of them. And I think for me, it's that there's a forcefulness to this performance here that distinguishes it not only from Francis, but a lot of Gerwig characters. Uh, she has brought a certain flightiness, you could say, to some of her performances. Not all of them. This one, though, she takes comic charge. She's going for big laughs. And she lands them. Uh, Brooke is the overconfident 30-something New Yorker who she hasn't really accomplished all that much, but she certainly acts like she has. She's this tornado of creativity and ideas. And in the film, she takes her college-age stepsister, who's played by a very good Lola Kirk, under her wing yeah. until this stepsister starts to realize that uh, the empress has no clothes. <laughs> I think Brooke, you know, she gets the great entrance, right, The on the stairs in Times Square. Mm -hmm where she comes down and says, uh, welcome to the Great White Way. <laughs> yeah. And it's very impressive. It's very dramatic. And the Lola Kerr character is obviously like, wow, uh -huh. who's this person? And then she realizes there's 30 stairs yeah. to go yet. And yeah. so still waiting. What am I going to do now? It and undercuts kinda, her authority. It's such her a great scene. completely. Yeah. And Gerwig, who we already know from Francis Ha and other films, is uh, an expert comedian with dialogue here she's throwing in a lot of physical comedy as well and mm -hmm. it comes it plays into that stairway scene so yeah it does i think that she's certainly very aware the brooke character is very aware that she's playing a character and i think if i could try to sum up at all why she's my number one it has to do with the fact that she is someone within the context of the story of this story mistress america who the tracy character is so drawn to that she constructs this whole universe around her. She writes a story about her. And Brooke, that character, we have to see that. That has to come through. We have to want to construct our own narrative almost and follow her through the course of this whole movie simply because we see her as so outlandish, as so bigger than life. Mm -hmm. And we can't wait to see if the depth 
that seems to be there at first is really there at all or if it's all a facade. And the more that facade starts to crack, the more interesting Brooke becomes. I'm impressed, Brooke. It takes a lot of moxie to start a restaurant. Thanks. You're doing it, babe. You're out there doing something besides amassing and hoarding money. If I could figure out how to amass and hoard money, I'd do it. Well, you could have married me or a dozen other guys, but you wanted to be your own person. Yeah, no, I'm over that now. <laughs> you're funny because you don't know you're funny. I know I'm funny. There's nothing I don't know about myself. That's why I can't do therapy. We're back to vulnerability, I yeah. think, uh, but a different sort than Francis Ha. Any other characters you want to give some love to, Josh? Absolutely. Okay. Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig together in Greenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, she plays Florence. He's Greenberg. I completely buy both of those uniquely miserable characters in their own way. I don't know if I buy the movie romance that develops between them, but in terms of characters, they're fantastic. I do like Jennifer Jason Lee in Margot at the Wedding as well as the younger sister. She has a, a sad loopiness to her that's that's very precise. Ramona Ray, played by Annabella Sciorra in Mr. Jealousy. Yeah, the one I haven't seen. I just caught up with it myself. She's really delightful and, and funny, has a light touch. And I don't know what my impression of her was from other movies that she made back in that era. Um, but it wasn't this. It, it was maybe more serious and, and that she hadn't really done all that much. But she's a lot of fun in Mr. Jealousy. And I mentioned Carlos Jacot from kicking and screaming he's got a supporting part here as well um as this um he's this easily flabbergasted friend of eric stoltz's title character Mm. he almost steals the movie i mean he's he's really really funny so for me the only one i was going to try to get overly clever and maybe a little pretentious about was i was going to try to make a case for brian de palma as uh, someone tried to a do that on Twitter, character. too. Come on. I mean, I think it could be made. Someone much smarter than He's me could make that case. He's certainly playing a character in that I, documentary. I think he is. And we could debate how true to him in real life it really is. But there's something there in the way Bombach shoots him and does depict him, even though it's an interview and it's a documentary. And you could argue that we're seeing De Palma the way Bombach wants us to see Brian De Palma, in addition to the way De Palma wants us to. Those are our top five Noah Bombach characters. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you'll find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And it's your last chance. Will this be their last chance to vote in the current poll? Yes. I think before Halloween, we're asking what's the best horror movie of the last decade. So if you want to weigh in on that, head over to filmspotting.net. If you haven't already, we do ask that you check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. The next picture show, I believe they're doing a Blade Runner double feature hmm. for this week's episode. And also, of course, there is Film Spotting SVU. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, Goodbye Christopher Robin, a behind-the-scenes look at the life of author A.A. Milne and the creation of the Winnie the Pooh stories inspired by his son Donald Gleason stars along with Margot Robbie. In wide release, Geostorm. How many times have you seen the trailer now, Josh, for Geostorm? Starring Gerard Butler. Too many. Yeah, way too many. We're not going to go into the plot description here. It's about a geostorm. Only the Brave file under Sadly Very Relevant, based on the true story of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, a group of elite firefighters, risk everything to protect a town from a historic wildfire. Listen to this cast. Miles Teller, Josh Brolin, Jeff Bridges, Jennifer Connolly, and many more. It's getting good reviews so far. I am curious about that one. And I'm certainly curious about the FAS. Michael Fassbender in The Snowman. He plays Detective Harry Hole. Rebecca Ferguson, so good 
in the last Mission Impossible movie, also co-stars, and it's directed by Tomas Alfredson, who gave us Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, and Let the Right One In. And if none of those work for you, you do have a Medea Halloween, too. Which gives me the opportunity to pose this question to you. I haven't been able to do this in a while. You haven't. Gun to your head. Gun to my head. Medea Halloween 2 or Geostorm? I think the last time you did this, it was with a Medea Medea movie. (laughs) It's really not fair. Have you watched one yet? I'm going Medea. Right choice. Absolutely, Medea. Next week on the show, we will talk about Suburbicon. George Clooney directed, Matt Damon starring, Coen Brothers scripted. And we will share our top five suburban send-ups or movies about suburbia. Yeah. That's where we're at. Suburban spoof, something like that maybe. Something like that. If you've got a good pick or a great alternate title or maybe a better top five list, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. If you do have a pick, send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in next week's show. 312-264-0744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach as many new listeners as possible. Our music this week is by Cherry Glazer. It comes from the album Apocalyptic. That's fantastic. It is. I can't believe that hasn't been used before. More information is at cherry-glazer with two hours. Two hours. com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hello. 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 Did testing. You, did you testing read? One, two, three. Did you read that garbage film reviews email? That reminded me. It was stuff like that. Why I first began the Why I'm Wrong page. Right. Like it mostly consisted of stuff. It wasn't, really? Yeah. I you posted it for the nonsense? Yeah. Because <laughs> this was in the early days of Rotten Tomatoes and that's all you'd get. Oh, God. You'd, you'd get like the vile. And back then it was still kind of like a novelty. So it was amusing. You didn't realize the majority of the populace thought <laughs> this way. So it took me back to those good old, good old early Rotten Tomatoes days. I've always bemoaned. To an extent that we don't get more of that. Well, like I can it's really count weird that we don't. I can count on one hand over twelve years the number of emails like that I've seen. I think it was the tampon that set them off. Because you ask yourself, <laughs> why is that true? Like, right? Like, why this movie? I love it. And yeah. this review, yeah, and, the Florida and so Project. And he's like, was that supposed to be funny? <laughs> it's like, no, I don't think it was actually. <laughs> Right. And so I'm looking and reading it and thinking there's something here. Oh, yeah. That, there was more going on. Yeah, there's – exactly. Like there's something here that – Some of the words he used to describe oh, yeah. the mother. Yeah. And I'm – yeah, I'm going to blame it was that. Yeah, detail. she she offended everything about him. Deeply. Yeah. So more going on there. But yeah, <laughs> so what, what else have you been up to since we haven't seen each other for like three weeks? Um – Let's see. We have our on again, off again family Hitchcock marathon has mostly been on again. Okay. We did the birds. Father of the year. Two weeks ago. And well, maybe not with the birds. And you have an animal lover, a sixth grade animal lover. Someone recently just told me about how they saw that movie. That was like the first Hitchcock they saw and it scarred them for life. 
it's it is intense. I mean, I came to it thinking I saw this second time I saw it. And the first time I saw it, it was kind of like one of his lesser regarded and mm-hmm. thought it would be campy. And it, it struck me that way a little bit, uh, except for that scene where they outside the schoolhouse where they start coming one by mm-hmm. one. That's always been brilliant. Liked it even more this time. Really? Yeah, it went over all right. And I liked Hedron a lot. The mm-hmm. first time I was like, yeah, she's, you know, this is a bad movie performance. But I don't know. This time I, I saw it more as um, she was kind of working against the anti-feminist position of the movie, I feel like. And it's almost as if she's pushing back on that really hard. And eh, I, I liked it. And then this weekend we watched um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 34, yeah. is it? Something like The first one. Something like that. Hilarious. I had never seen that I one. I don't think I've seen it. Um, real, I mean, you know, child kidnapping, assassination, and it's mostly played for laughs. It's it's mostly played as huh. a comedy. and went over well that way, too. So, so yeah, we've been having fun catching up yeah, on some Hitchcock. Yeah, 34, and then a remake in 56. Right. Yeah, they were they were like, why aren't we watching the, you know, the 56? Mm-hmm. And I said, you got to, it's like reading yeah, the book. Adam. The original. You got to start with the source well, material. on that we agree. <laughs> in this case, I... Have not been seeing many movies. I did take Sophie to see Les Mis. Alan saw that and she's jealous. I got a dirty look. Like <laughs> the imply so the implication I'm was father why of the aren't year. we doing okay, that? Okay, I'm father of the year. Well, and I just happened to open up the newspaper today. Front page of the arts and entertainment section of the Trib. Chris Jones four stars. Oh yeah, for Les Mis. And was now, it good? I cannot give it four stars because I tried. I just don't love Les Mis. Yeah. Like, I just don't love the story. I get that. Or where it goes. But the production, I absolutely understand why he gave it four stars. Mm-hmm. Really good. Amazing cast. One weak link and a supporting player. Otherwise, the main cast, phenomenal. And the performance, I can definitely grade really high. And the fact is, all that mattered was, was Sophie happy. Right. Because she's obsessed with Les Mis. And, you know, she was already saying, I have to make sure that Fontaine has to be great. Neponine has to be great. And Jean Valjean has to be great. And they were great. Good. And she loved it. Good. She loved it. So. Yeah, I think that was the first big stage musical I ever saw. I think Debbie and I went on a date. I think it probably would have been high school. And it, just the spectacle of it. Yeah. You know, before you'd really gotten much exposure to mm-hmm. big stage musicals was impressive and, and pretty amazing. So, yeah, I'm going to, how long is it running? I'm not sure. I think I'm, only like a through, month. It's not through Christmas, huh? I think it's only about a month. There were though tickets available. Okay. Like the last time I looked, it's not like it was sold out. Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking like, can I do like the Christmas present thing? And, but <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not like the Kempenars. We don't just go to these things. I know. You know? I know. <laughs> well, so, yeah, Blade Runner. I listened yeah, to your guys' so review. You, yeah, and you can't get into it, huh? You just don't, I can't. You just don't want to enjoy believe, yourself at the I movies. I can't believe that I was lukewarm, not even lukewarm, just mixed, straight up mixed response to Blade Runner 2049. Like I thought if there was ever something, it would be just right in my wheelhouse, that this was a given, that I would love it. I listened to you talk about the movie with Michael, and it's honestly a case, Josh, where I agree with virtually everything you both said. You both just appreciated the movie way yeah, more than me. Yeah, it didn't do it for you. No, it didn't. So I disagree with Michael on one big thing, which is he seemed very positive on Gosling in his performance. And mm. look, I like him as an actor. I love him as an actor in a lot of movies. Can't think of the last time I didn't like him. And Michael made a good point about how there is something just essentially 
inhuman about him. It's it almost like he doesn't. It's kind of a backhanded compliment I know, he was but, giving him. But it's not wrong. But I think he is a real weak link here in the hmm. film. He just, that that presence that he's brought in other films where it's kind of the brooding, don't say a whole lot, but you're just, you're just magnetized by him. I, I never, I never felt that with his character. Yeah, I was it, never drawn to him at all. It's weird with him because I go hot and cold on that exact thing he does, mm-hmm. which he doesn't do in every film. But, and I can't think of which ones before now where I've just not responded at all to that vacancy, that purposeful vacancy. Yeah. I don't know. I thought for here it was right for the character he's playing. Well, I agreed with your take on what was good about the Ford Gosling showdown that we get near the end of that film. But I agreed with Michael even more that it was ultimately really tedious and and didn't work for me. Yeah, the whole Vegas. I mean, again, I'm with you. I love the reality versus Mm -hmm. non-reality thing and just the the jarring nature of all of a sudden Elvis popping up on the screen and everything that signified. But the just watching that whole sequence play out, I was I was bored by it just as I was bored, as you guys said, with everything about how the end sequence of this movie was conceived. And I don't just mean how the action was shot, which I didn't like, but the water just, sequence, yeah, everything about it, yeah. how it was set up, why characters were there, why they weren't there. It just, it, it really didn't make any sense. And I think that for me, it was funny a couple of days after I saw it, you know, we now get all this news tailored to our interests. Right. And I see this thing pop up on my phone and I think it was io9.com or Gizmodo or something. And they had an article called the mysteries of Blade Runner 2049 were not meant to be explained in sequels. And I saw that headline and I thought, what are the mysteries mm-hmm. of Blade Runner 2049? I mean, I, I just saw the movie like 24, 48 hours ago. I can't think of one thing you that's still on my brain. mind as I'm thinking about that movie. And so I read the article and it says, at no point in the creation of the story or script did anyone talk about spinoffs or how might things continue. It was always, what's our story? And make sure you have a story that's worth the title. That's the co-writer, Michael Green. And then the writer of this article says, which is interesting because Blade Runner 2049 definitely has things in it that could launch other movies. Characters are introduced, talk about huge things they're involved in that we barely see, and then exit the movie again. And at least one big antagonist makes it to the end of the film perfectly alive, and with all their resources intact, all those little things were apparently meant to be left dangling in the audience's mind. Those aren't things for me, Josh, that could launch other movies. They're things that should have been dealt with properly in this film. That's just evidence of bad hmm. storytelling in this movie, yeah, ultimately. Yeah, but then, you, then it would have pestered you more. I mean, you would have been kind of gnawing But that's on that's it. my point. I think that... And you can't help, of course, especially as we just talked about the original Blade Runner. That's a movie that is remarkably straightforward. More straightforward, I found, than I remembered it in terms of being yeah, this pretty hard-boiled line. detective noir. We know exactly what Deckard's after. Yeah. We know what Roy Batty's after and why they're in conflict with each other and what happens. And then it opens up all these questions that we're still talking about beyond just, is Deckard a replicant? We're still talking about the things that this movie makes us think about Twenty years later, or however many years later it is, 35 years later since Blade Runner, this movie seemed to me like one, I think this might be misunderstood if I don't say it correctly here, but it's made by someone who was clearly a fan of the original Blade Runner. And I don't mean that like a fanboy. I just mean it like someone who said, all those questions that the original Blade Runner made me think about, I'm going to infuse every scene (laughs) with those questions. And instead of it being subtext, it's going to be the text of my movie. I guess I thought it was more interesting as subtext. I think it's text. And yeah, I mentioned this. It's definitely text whenever Jared Leto 
is oh, man. talking, right? He's he's as I said, he's talking thematically. But I think there's yes. a lot of visual subtext going on. It's interesting when people talk about the plot of this film. I think that is going to fall by the wayside, and I do think people hmm. will look back on this and say. This has some really prescient stuff about AI and how we're going to interact with it emotionally, what Mm -hmm. part it's going to play in our lives. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I found as much to chew on here as in Spike Jones's Her in terms of that and intersection I see the of humanity and technology. Um, so I think that I think it's going to last. I Maybe. really do. I mean, you might be right. I think for me, I I did start to tune it out. I, it wasn't that, that too long. It wasn't that engaging. Obviously too long. It, it really is. And yeah. I, I hate that criticism. We don't use it much here on the show. But there is 45 minutes of of nothingness here. It certainly could have been cut down. And I, I don't think mean that's, it had to that's be a flaw like, with the movie. I, I liked the leisurely tone of course. which it borrows from the original. I like the, deliberately like, paced movies. And the original did that in what? Two hours, right? So exactly. you don't need 245 to do But that. those Jared Leto scenes, yeah, Josh, not they're, they're not just not good. They're they're terrible. I mean, they're unwatchable. They they bring the entire movie. I know there are only two of them, but they bring it the feels whole like a lot movie. More than it that. Do, they bring the film to a screeching halt, and they're not even fun. They're not even like that kind of megalomaniacal, well, the, creepy fun. No, but the production design of those spaces at least carried me through them. I mean, once they I realized me. he was going to be babbling gobbledygook, <laughs> I just kind of like watched where the light played on the ceiling. I don't know. Pretty nice. Yeah, I will say this. One of the big surprises of the film, and maybe another weakness of the film, is that when it asks Harrison Ford to be the emotional, to carry oh, the emotional it. You're not going to say Ford is bad. I'm going to say he's awesome. Okay, I'm just saying good. I can't believe Ooh. that they put that weight on his shoulders, yeah, but that's he a delivers. Risk. That's a risk, He right? delivers his scenes. He is the closest thing to the Roy Batty character that yes. this movie has. I wish it had more of that before we finally got to that scene with him, but he absolutely delivers here. And... I do love all the supporting players in this one, too, besides Jared Leto. You guys talked about Ana de Armas and Sylvia Hoykes. I love that performance mm-hmm. as the the hench woman, right. I suppose, yep. to Jared Leto. I mean, it's it's more than that. The way she captures that kind of strength and, and something unreal about her, but also fundamentally human. I mean, it comes mm-hmm. through in her performance. And then even at the beginning of the film, Dave Bautista just continues to yeah. show in a small scene how he's an actor to be reckoned with. He he right. is not just this physical presence. He is he's the real deal. And he's not this is like something we haven't seen yet, or at least I haven't. We've seen no. the funny side of exactly. him, right? We've seen the physical side of him, and here is here's a almost a, a combination. There's not humor here, right? But of that intimidation, but a really he strikes you as a really thoughtful character, not just because yes. he's wearing those glasses. I mean, that, no. he doesn't need those. But, you know, the way he moves. You're so easily persuaded. Yeah, like, oh, the guy's got glasses. Oh, he must be cerebral. <laughs> no, he's really I'm good. You. He's really good. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.